0: Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. I just want to say thanks very much for all the iTunes reviews. They've been very helpful and please keep them coming. As always, you can find us on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And you can check out our blog at lucian. That's L-U-C-I-A-N lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. One other thing I wanted to mention is that since August, we've been doing our hosting through a new startup called Pippa, which is pretty cool. It's actually founded by some former philosophers. And I have to say, I've been very impressed so far. The service is totally free, provides detailed analytics, makes it very easy for you to migrate from your previous host to them. So all in all, it's been a very positive experience, and it's enabled us to get much more detailed stats on who's listening and when. So if you have a podcast and you're looking for a hosting service, you might check them out. They can be found at pippa.io, P-I-P-P-A dot I-O. All right, thanks. Hello and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast ordinarily recorded at the University of Chicago, but which today is being brought to you from San Francisco. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me is Austa Svensdotter, Associate Professor of Philosophy at San Francisco State University, and she is here to talk to us about social construction. Austa Svensdotter, welcome.
1: Thank you, Matt. I was very excited when you asked me to do this conversation with you, partly because I'm so excited that philosophers are increasingly interested in social construction. There have been some prominent philosophers who have been working on social construction for quite some time, including Ian Hacking and Sally Haslanger and Ron Mallon but it hasn't really been part of a mainstream occupation. But I think there's some change there. I mean, I would like philosophers to be more engaged with a lot of things that is going on in the academy and outside of the academy, and I see this interest in this topic as part of that. That being said, there's so many things that could be said to be socially constructed. So I think in order to get a clear on what we're really talking about, we have to make some distinctions. In particular, we have to make a distinction between whether we're talking about our conception of the thing or the idea of the thing, and say that it's the idea or the conception or our understanding of the thing that's socially constructed or as a result of social practices, or whether we're wanting to say that the thing itself is socially constructed. So as an example, are we saying that some people have argued that nature is socially constructed, and what they've really brought to bear on that is to say that the way we understand nature, our concept of nature our conception of nature or something like that, that that is influenced by social practices and very historically contingent and things like that.
0: So what would example of uh, nature being socially constructed, like a a deer in the woods, is a deer in the woods socially constructed in some way?
1: I don't want to say that it is, right? So um, what I want to say is that even if our understanding of nature or concept of nature, the way we think of nature, is influenced by social practices, maybe even determined by social practices in some way, it doesn't show that nature itself is, right? And I'm mostly interested in the kind of social construction where the thing itself is supposed to be socially constructed. So I don't think nature is a good example of that. I think things like, say, money or institutions, they are good examples of that but also kinds of people, things like recessions. I think those things are social entities in a certain way, and they're socially constructed. But there are also things that are maybe physical phenomena, but could also be said to be socially constructed. And in order to get a sense in which that can be the case, I think we have to make a distinction between causal construction and constitutive construction. And so this is a distinction that comes from Haslinger and Ron Malin has used it as well. The idea there is that when you're dealing with a causal construction, then it could be either the case that the phenomenon in question is caused by social forces, or the phenomenon has social consequences. So the the social can be either a cause or an effect, if you will. So let's take an example disability. A lot of people want to say that disability is socially constructed, and there are lots of ways in which disability can be socially constructed, and if we just talk about the ways in which it could be causally constructed, we can imagine, like my grandmother, she had polio when she was two, and couldn't walk very well, we can imagine that she she actually wasn't in a wheelchair, but we can imagine that she was. We can call that a a certain kind of physical impairment, if you will, that you're in a wheelchair or you can't walk very well. Now, there are various physical consequences of being in a wheelchair. You can't really climb a mountain and stuff like that if you're in a wheelchair. So there are, you know, physical consequences of being in a wheelchair. But there can also be social consequences. So for instance, if all parties in your department are on the second floor of buildings that don't have an elevator, then you can't go to parties because you're in a wheelchair. Now, so these would be sort of certain social consequences of your being in a wheelchair. of you're having the feature being in a wheelchair, that feature has social consequences given the social and physical environment. And there could also be more institutional consequences, like if the voting booth were also on the second floor and there was no elevator, you couldn't vote. And it could be that no one intended this. No one really thought about it. But it's nevertheless the case that there are certain social things you can't do, namely vote, because of the voting booth being stationed physically on the second floor.
0: Well, so at a broad level, we might want to distinguish between the example of the deer which has the properties it has having antlers, right? So that's not in virtue of what a bunch of people in a culture agree on that the deer has the antlers it has. No, it was just born with the antlers it has and yada, 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 subject to the laws of biology and so forth on the one hand. On the other hand, there's this stuff like monetary value. So the purchasing power of like a $5 bill that's in my wallet, like the laws of physics didn't give my $5 bill in my wallet, the purchasing power it has no the fact that we all agree that a five dollar bill is going to be acceptable currency and get you this amount of stuff it's in virtue of the fact that we all agree on that that it has that value so those are sort of like two extreme cases
1: yes yeah i totally and uh, these two extreme cases you're talking about are especially helpful when we're thinking about constitutive construction because mm-hmm. constitutive construction has more to do with people's intentions and intentional activity than the causal construction. You can imagine that no one really thought about anything, no one's intentionally doing anything to prevent uh, my grandmother from voting or going to parties. But it just so happened. I mean, it's not that they were not intentionally doing anything, but they were not intentionally trying to prevent my grandmother from voting or from going to parties. But the type of construction that you mentioned, money, is this other type, which is constitutive construction. So before we get to things like money, let's talk about a different type of of construction, where it's not social consequences that matter, but actually the social causes changes in the physical environment, and can even cause changes such that you have a certain feature. So there may be actually, even in the case of your deer, where you think that, oh no, there's features of the deer that are not socially constructed. There may be features of animals that are socially constructed in the causal way. If society has, for instance, polluted things in a certain way, such that deer come to, say, all limp or something, then the deer are limping, and that's as a result of social practices polluting practices that we engage in so that's a physical feature the deer has but it's actually as a result of social forces antlers probably not like that but there can be features
0: yeah maybe if there's a legal policy that introduces some sort of toxin into the deer's water supply that causes it to have reduced antlers or something
1: precisely precisely. that's totally conceivable and this kind of thing happens all the time. So there's contamination in water and people develop ailments because of that all over the world, right? So there people come to have features they didn't have before or their descendants come to have features they wouldn't otherwise have had because of pollutants or in various other things that are socially created. But the type of social construction that you mentioned when we talked about money is a different kind. So that's where there is a new entity that comes into being that's over and above whatever the thing was there before. Just like artifacts like statues, you might think, are something over and above just the material that make them up. Similarly, Social phenomena like institutions, the university I teach at, for instance, is something over and above just the physical buildings and the people and things like that. So we say that social phenomena is constituted by several things.
0: And the language of constitution is intended to suggest something like there's a new entity that exists only because we all agree that it exists and it has the properties it has only because we all agree that it has the properties it has. Or something like that.
1: Well philosophers disagree about whether it's a hallmark of social entities of that nature, whether we all agree that they exist. So things like recessions for instance, a lot of people think there can be recessions and there can be instances of recessions without anyone having any beliefs about anything. But there can be other types of social phenomena where it's crucial that people have beliefs about them. So for instance, money. Money might be a good case of things where a piece of paper can't be money unless it's taken to be currency or something like that. So if people have certain attitudes, philosophers term attitudes towards the piece of paper, probably not just belief attitudes, but something like commitment or acceptance or something like that. Which has a slightly different structure. Yeah, so as I said, philosophers disagree about to what extent various social kinds are dependent on attitudes of subjects for their existence. So whether there can be social kinds that exist even though no one has beliefs about them, no one has commitments towards them, and things like that. And I think the answer to those kinds of questions is basically it depends. depends on what kind of social entity you're talking about. I think that kinds of people, so social kinds that are basically kinds of people, might be good candidates for the kind of social phenomena that you were thinking of, where I think, for instance, that race and gender are the kind of phenomena where these social kinds exist partly because people take them to exist and they treat each other as if they do. And what does it mean to treat each other as if they do? They put constraints on each other, constraints and enablements as well on each other's behavior depending on where on the social map they take you to belong to, if you will. The social phenomena like genders and races are the kind of phenomena where, where they are intention-dependent in the way that you were suggesting.
0: So to go back to the disability example that we discussed earlier, so let's say that I'm in a wheelchair. Now, one might argue that that's not a social phenomenon at all. Um, There's no social institution that made me unable to move my legs. It's a physical, biological fact about me that I can't move my legs. It's not like some committee convened and stipulated that I, you know, no, it's a physical feature of mine. And what we observed earlier is that even if you take that position, you kind of still have to grant that social institutions and social agreements still have some kind of influence on what it's like for me to live in a wheelchair because it's social policies that determine the way our buildings are set up and the way our streets are set up and the way our traffic lights are set up. So even if you want to insist that it's just a sort of physical, biological fact about me that I can't move my legs and that I, I move about in a wheelchair... You still have to grant that what the experience of living life in a wheelchair is like depends on the way our buildings and streets and stairs and traffic lights and so forth are set up. It's going to affect the opportunities I have. It's going to affect how easy it is for me to cast a vote, to take our previous example. So that all seems pretty uncontroversial. But now there's a further interesting question. If we want to get maybe a little more adventurous in our claims here, that maybe beyond the the notion of disability or paralysis being causally socially constructed in the sense we just discussed, maybe it's, to use this terminology, constitutively socially constructed to a certain extent as well, and to say that would be to say that the very feature of being paralyzed is somehow created or made possible or something like that by our social institutions and what we agree upon in some way or other. So what do you think about that? Would you be willing to go that far? Or or should we shy away from making that further claim?
1: I want to go all out. I want to say that disability is a social status. So physical impairment is not a social status, but disability is. And so the way I think of it is that I say, being in a wheelchair, we can allow that that's a physical feature. And then I give an account of the social construction of disability as that physical feature, being in a wheelchair, has social significance in the society. And what that means is that people taken to have that feature get conferred onto them a social status which consists in constraints and enablements on their behavior. So, for instance, there could be communal constraints and enablement. So, in certain contexts, people who are seen to have some physical impairment are stigmatized. And so people don't want to socialize with them, they don't want to even buy things from them, or whatever. So there there are constraints on their life options that have nothing to do with the physical impairment itself, but actually the role they can play in the society. And then they can also be institutional. So if we make a distinction between communal and institutional constraints and enablements then institutional constraints and enablements have to do with rights, obligations, privileges or allowances or accommodations or things like that so for instance there could be a society in which if you were taken to be physically impaired you were thought to have certain powers and you were granted status of a seer or something like that Which is the case here that if you have a physical disability, you get parking accommodations. So you are allowed to park in certain places that people who are not taken to that feature cannot. So, on this conception, it's a conception of social construction as social significance. That is, the idea is that there's a feature you have that has social meaning and that constrains and enables your behavior in the society or in the particular contexts. We have to be context-specific here. And so disability is then the conferred feature, and the physical impairment is the feature that people are trying to track in the conferral of this social status, which is being disabled.
0: So the interesting thing about this case, then, is that being uh, disabled in this way isn't just a physical, biological feature of me, because it's also a social status. Uh, It gives me certain legal entitlements. It allows me to park in certain places. It makes me eligible for disability insurance, perhaps, etc., etc. So some social rituals I'll be allowed to participate in because of this social status that I have, and other social rituals perhaps I'll be debarred from participating in because I have this status And different people have all kinds of different sort of social statuses, which give them permission to do certain things and maybe give them certain entitlements to do certain things. But it's not just kind of a random social status, like we rolled the dice and this person gets this status and that person gets that status. It's also, you use this language of tracking. It's also intended to somehow reflect a feature of the person that's not just a social status, even though it ultimately, you want to argue, is a social status. Is that about right?
1: Yes, so I think that the social status gets conferred. And in conferring the social status, the entities, whether it's officials or people or whoever is doing the conferring in each context, they are going to be trying to track a feature that's relevant to the conferral. So you could, for instance, not be physically impaired but people might take you to be physically impaired. And if they take you to be physically impaired and confer onto you a special parking permit, then you have a parking permit, right? So th- those are the institutional constraints and enablements. And that's the institutional conferral, where you're conferring an institutional property, which is a social status, which is fleshed out in terms of. Rights and privileges, allowances, they're deontic. Deontic meaning there are obligations, there are entitlements, and things like that. Can also be what I call communal properties. The first example I, I mentioned is when someone gets stigmatized and people treat them in a certain way, it's not that they give them entitlements or, you know, prevent them legally or anything like that from engaging in certain activities they do it communally they sort of it's a matter of social power not a matter of legislation or something like that
0: maybe it's more like a de facto status or something
1: yeah so it's the let's say you're not actually in a wheelchair but you limp there is a dance on the first floor of some building and you go to the dance you could actually dance but no one wants to dance with you So you are in this sort of old-fashioned where you're supposed to sit by the wall and wait for people to invite you to dance or something and no one ever invites you to dance. It's not going to be illegal for you or not permitted for you to dance. It's just that no one wants to dance with you. And I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier which was the idea that well, the physical impairment could be just a physical, biological thing. Sometimes we think that's all there is to it, but in fact it is socially caused. So like my grandmother, she had polio. People got polio because of social practices, because of bad hygiene, and because the government maybe didn't have the power to, but in any case did not prevent certain diseases from spreading and and things like this. So... It's definitely socially cost in her case, even though it's a physical feature.
0: So with a lot of these humankind examples that we've been talking about, so people with disabilities, you know, men, women, white people, East Asians, and so on and so forth, a lot of these sort of like terms we use for groups of people, in pretty much all of these cases, there are prevailing stereotypes about those groups of people. And it's natural to wonder whether the stereotype can then, you know, bounce back and impact the life of the person. So, I mean, one famous case here is uh, the phenomenon of stereotype threat where disenfranchised minorities will often perform less well on an exam if the exam is pitched to them as something that plays into a stereotype about them being bad at that kind of exam or whatever. So what should we make of these cases where the stereotype about a group of people directly affects what it's like to be one of those types of people? Would that be a case of causal social construction or what we were calling constitutive social construction, a little of both?
1: So I think this is a very good case of uh, causal social construction. And Ian Hacking has talked about this as a looping effect where the conception of people of that social kind or that kind is imposed on people and they have to respond to it. So if the stereotype of, you know, Icelanders is that they're lazy, then whenever I, when I'm an Icelander, whenever I meet people, they're going to assume that I'm lazy. And so I have to deal with that stereotype. And in forming my own conception of myself, I have to respond to other people's conception of who I might be in that way. And sometimes people start embracing the stereotype in a certain way. So this is a type of causal construction where the idea of the person causes changes in the people, either that they become more like the idea is or they resist in some way. But even that resistance is going to be constrained by that idea. So it's a type of causal construction that we talked about before, but where... It's not a social cause of physical environment. It's not a social cause of the feature in question. It's not also social consequences of having that feature, but rather where the idea of the thing causes changes in the thing.
0: So a lot of the people who have made these kinds of arguments that some kind of thing or some kind of person is socially constructed, where before it had been assumed that It wasn't socially constructed. A lot of the people who have made those kinds of arguments, I think, have been motivated kind of like ethically and politically. And there's been the sense that it's helpful in some way, maybe not necessarily morally, but at least theoretically, to have a better grip on the way some of these uh, human kinds and other social institutional phenomena function. And then, as we mentioned earlier these kinds of arguments have also sometimes been made as sort of like debunking arguments. So here's something we thought was totally natural or totally not constructed, but in fact it is. And that's, uh, I think, been a source of many people resisting these kinds of arguments historically. So what do you think is the significance of the kind of argument we've been discussing, for example, that maybe even something like disability could be argued to be socially constructed in certain respects?
1: Well, I talked a little bit about the role of the claim of social construction in social explanation before but if we want to make some general observations then it's about location of responsibility and so it's definitely connected to morality it's definitely connected to social justice so a lot of people think well you know these physical features you know whether someone is in a wheelchair or not that's nothing to do with me that's just where they are and what, how nature created them and there's nothing that doesn't concern me but in fact it does concern you it, in fact you're part of a society where that can be the cause of various things about that person's life so both in the case of cause of construction and in the case of constitu- construction we can locate responsibility where we are partly responsible and certainly where we could do some good. People often think that metaphysics um, is just a theoretical philosophy, and it's just about our understanding. It doesn't have practical import, but I actually think metaphysics of the social world is directly practical. So that if we better understand our social world, we also better understand our role in creating and sustaining it. And... Than coupled with assumptions about that we should take on certain responsibilities, that we have a responsibility in changing it.
0: Yeah, that's nice. So, right, whereas before I may have thought of disability as some tragic situation that befell some other person, but it doesn't have anything to do with me. Once we recognize that disability is, in fact, a social status, well, it kind of has at least a little bit to do with me because I'm part of society. And as somebody who's part of society, I have some role or other to play in shaping the kinds of social statuses that people can have. It's not maybe fully clear exactly what that role is, but it's at least clear that I have some role or other to play. I'm implicated somehow.
1: Precisely. Um, Precisely.
0: Is it possible for an individual to sort of change a social status? Like, let's say I want to somehow change the status of disabled for the better. Is there a way for me to do that?
1: I think it's possible for you to join with others to change it. And I think it's possible both in terms of the institutional statuses and also in terms of communal statuses. But it's a social phenomenon, it's not an individual phenomenon. And, but you can partake in reshaping it with other people in every context that you show up in.
0: Svensdotter, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Matt. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L U C I A N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening.